going to talk about worship this morning. I thought it'd be fitting with us having a night of worship tonight just to be able to take a little break from our Bible survey and to talk about uh, worship. And I know, like me, probably your mind goes a lot of places. Uh, one of the first things I go to is, is worship is singing music, just like we did, because that is a huge part um, of worship. And of course, when my mind goes there, I think pretty quickly I am I shouldn't be the person up here because I can't play an instrument. I can't carry a tune. Uh, you know, I don't have rhythm most of the time. I'm, I'm probably not your guy for worship. But it is more uh, than just singing, thankfully. But I get to partake, like I will tonight, um, in what our talented folks um, are able to bring us into an opportunity and an environment to worship. But there's corporate worship, like we're experiencing now, where we sing, we praise the Lord. We hear from his word, we pray, but there's also times of individual worship, maybe on your own, when you're engaging time with the Lord, where you are brought into a place of worship. And I have to admit, you know, this is not always, it doesn't feel like this is all the time everywhere. For me, I can think back to some times where God has really brought me into a place of worship. One time, um, in particular, is I used to work for a ministry called Young Life. There are 5,000 of us gathered in, a, in one building in Orlando, Florida for a staff conference. We do it every four years. And we were singing and we were praising the Lord. And you know, it wasn't just the sheer number. And it wasn't just the, the band that was on stage that was super talented. But I think it was also the people. It was my brothers and sisters, and we were all laboring for the gospel. And so that was a time of real worship for me that I've experienced. And I'm sure all of you have those times where you can look and go, you know, here's a, here's a moment where I really felt like it was real worship. And there's been times individually, just by myself, alone, maybe in the Word, a lot of times maybe driving in my car, listening to some music, when God really just impresses something on me. And it's a really deep time of, of connection with the Lord. And again, I'm sure all of you have had those moments. Because there's no doubt in my mind that we are created to worship. We are made to worship. Um, it's one of our core values here at Fellowship. Here's a quote by John Piper. I'll share this as we get started. It says, worship has to do with real life. It's not just a mythical interlude in a week of reality. You know, it's not just this one hour we're chasing every week. Although that, if that's all you're getting right now, that's why we want you to be here. We want to draw you here. We want you to come and to worship with us. But it's not just this one kind of high point we're trying to grab that we hope sustains us until we come back. But worship is more than that. Worship is a part of real life. Here's a basic definition. You can Google this. It says, worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. The feeling or expression of adoration for a deity. Pretty simple, right? Makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that I, as I look at this, we know that the deity as believers, the deity is God, which we're going to talk about a lot this morning. Another word for reverence, adoration is deep love and respect. But as you probably know, and as I know, it's the dangerous thing is what, what we put in place of the word deity. 
Because we can put a lot of things there, can't we? And I won't go through the list. You can fill in the blank. But as humans, we are created to worship something, but more importantly, someone. And if we have the proper view on who that is, which we're going to talk about this morning, then they're in a danger. There's only praise and there's worship and there's adoration and there's love and there's respect and there's fear and there's all these things that God gives us to worship him. Here's another definition. I was talking to our former uh, college pastor, Zach Benton, and uh, I was reminded that he, he kind of framed it a different way, and this is how we talk about it in our core value. Um, and we were chatting about this, and it's the three R's, and you'll remember this. But he talked about it this way. It's a rhythm of revelation and response. A rhythm of revelation and response. That God reveals something to us, and then we respond back to him. That we get this revelation from him, and then as his people, we respond back to him. A rhythm of revelation and response. We're going to see that this morning. There's two Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that we're going to look at as we talk about how this makes sense. How we look at worship as music, as the Word of God, as His creation of everything that He has given us, how we respond to the revelation that He's given us. And on the outline, if you're looking at that, you know, I've talked about it as, as the object of worship, the motive of worship, and the method. And that's going to play out in these verses as we go through this this morning. And you see this rhythm of revelation and response back to God. This first one is out of uh, the book of Exodus. And this is where Moses is being invited back up onto Mount Sinai. He had come down with the law. He came down. Aaron and the people, the people came to Aaron and they were like, where's he gone? He's been gone forever. They were super impatient. They said, we've got to worship something. So they started throwing their gold in the fire. The fire out comes this golden calf. They're worshiping. Moses come down. He throws down the tablets. They shatter. And God is inviting him back up to the mountain. This is what it says. Read with me. It says, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write the words on them that were on the first ones which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there. We'll see this word present again. On top of the mountain. No one is to come with you. None of the flocks. They don't even be down grazing. Nobody else with you. So this is what Moses did. And he chiseled out the two stone tablets and he went up. Look what happened when he got there. It says, the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with him. The Lord came down, and he stood there with Moses. And it says, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And as he's starting to talk about himself, and to talk about who he is, he uses this term, the Lord. This is the word for Yahweh. They wouldn't even use that word in the Old Testament. The Jewish people wouldn't say that word because it was so holy. It was so personal to God. But this is the word that he's using for himself, his most personal name about himself. And tonight we're going to talk about, if you come back for our night of worship, we're going to talk about some different names of God and how that draws us in to worship. 
him as he is the object of our worship. So he starts to talk about himself and he says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So he's using his most personal name and he's describing himself and look at the words that he uses to describe himself. Compassionate and gracious. Another term for compassionate is merciful and gracious. And mercy is withholding what we deserve. So he's withholding something that we deserve. He is merciful, but he's also gracious, which is giving us what we do not deserve. And he's slow to anger. Another word for that is long-suffering. I made a little note here. He puts up with us. That's what he's doing with his people. I mean, as we've gone through the Old Testament books, and as you've read through the Old Testament, hopefully you see that God is long-suffering. And we've probably seen that in our own lives. I know I've seen it in mine. That God is patient. He is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. He puts up with me because of all of his character, all of his nature and his attributes. It says he's abounding in love and faithfulness. This is another word for steadfast love. We've talked about this a lot. The word hesed or loyal love, that's another way we talk about his goodness, his kindness, yet his truth and his firmness. This word's used over 242 times in the Old Testament. It's mostly used to describe God's love for us. But it's also used to describe our love for one another. This loyal love. This compassionate love. The truth is, and it wraps up Hesed, wraps up all of those things. Compassion, grace, mercy, kindness, long-suffering, slow to all that. Take every bit of that and wrap it up. And that's what is in this word, hesed. That's why they have a hard time defining it, describing it in English. But it's this word, hesed. And because of all these things, because of everything he is, all that's wrapped up in this, here's the response that we see from Moses. Look at this, read with me. It says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and he worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So we see this response from Moses because of all the things that God is. All these characteristics, this hesed love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace. And it physically drives Moses to his face physically drives him to his knees in reverence and in adoration. You know, and the truth is, I think sometimes it's, it's hard to be in this place. It's hard to feel the way that Moses is feeling. But this isn't just a whipped-up frenzy. You know, as I'm talking this morning, I don't want to get worship confused with getting whipped up into a human, a man-made frenzy And all of a sudden we think we're worshiping. That's not worship. What you're going to see this morning through this verse and the verse in Isaiah is that it is in response to his revelation. 
about himself. And when we see who he is, then we have no other choice but to worship him. And this is what happens with Moses. Is this how we respond when we hear about God's character, when we read about God's character, when we sing about God's character, his hesed? Does it drive us to our knees and do we bow down and worship? Because I know it's hard. Do we sit with the word of God in awe and wonder because of who he is? Or are we too hurried? And do we miss the opportunity that the Holy Spirit leads us into these places? Because there's lots of distractions. I know with myself, there's lots of distractions, lots of busyness, lots of let me read it so I can check off a list. Let me turn it on because I know that's what I probably should do is turn on my worship music in the morning. We miss it. We miss the point. Do we really, because of who he is, do we really fall on our face in worship because we're being led by the Holy Spirit? Because everything about who God is should move us into a posture of worship and praise. Everything about who God is should move us into a posture of worship and praise, just like Moses. <clears throat> Let's go on to Isaiah. Here's another example in the book of Isaiah. Read with me. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled this temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So here we see Isaiah is experiencing the glory of God. That's what's being revealed here, is God's glory. And the first thing he sees, he sees him high and lifted up. You see, King Uzziah was a good king, but he is about to experience the true king. But Isaiah is face to face with God. And he is going to meet the true king. And I love how he says, high and lift up, seated on a throne. You know, the truth is, a lot of us want to be on our own thrones, don't we? We want to worship ourselves. There's lots of things we want to put on the throne. But Isaiah is getting a very clear picture of what it looks like to worship the true king. And he's high and he's exalted, seated on a throne. And then this idea of his train, of his robe filling the temple. You know, kings were important. And they would have these big flowing robes, really long trains, and they'd walk around and everybody would have to tend to them. Similar to a bride on her wedding day with a long train. That's where it comes from. You know, and she's walking the aisle and everybody's kind of tending to her and serving and all their eyes are focused on them. But I love how it says the train of God's robe fills the entire temple. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then we get this picture of these angels with six wings. And this is why they're created, is to worship and glorify God. And here they are with six wings. With two, they're covering their faces. With two, they're covering their feet. With two, they're flying. Because even they know that being in the presence of God, they can't see his glory. 
the light of his glory. They can't be in his presence. They cover their face. They cover the feet as a sign of adoration. And it says they're calling to one another. They're not even calling out to God, but they're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says, and at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook at the temple was filled with smoke. So this is what Isaiah is experiencing. I mean, isn't this an awesome display of God's glory? As God is revealing himself to Isaiah through this moment. And these angels are calling back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Praising his name in reverence, in adoration, and proclaiming that the whole earth is full of his glory. Not just this temple where they're at, but the entire earth. All of his creation is filled with his glory. And it shakes the doorpost and the thresholds where Isaiah is standing as he's peering in. Look at this response. So we get this idea of this rhythm of revelation and response. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. I am ruined. Another word for that is I am undone. I mean, is this how we are in worship? I mean, I confess, this is not necessarily what I think about, is being ruined, being undone being taken apart, my entire being because of the presence of God that I'm in. And it drives him to confession about his unworthiness. He says, I'm unclean. I live among a people that are unclean. But my eyes have seen the king. I mean, this idea of being totally undone and being totally taken apart almost because of who God is. One thing that I think about Isaiah, he's got a really sober view of himself because it drives him to confession. He knows who he is. Do we have that kind of a sober view of ourselves in relationship to God Almighty? Do we understand that we are the created and he is the creator? Or do we like to play our own God and worship ourselves? You know, Isaiah here, he knows exactly how unworthy he is. And I'm not talking about some kind of self-deprecation. Oh, woe is me, I'm awful. I'm a loser, I'm no good. Nobody likes me. You know, that's not what Isaiah's doing here. Because of God's holiness, Isaiah sees his sin his imperfection, his unworthiness. And that's what drives him to say, woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone. And is that what we do? Is that how we view our sin? I know there's times in my life that maybe I have, but gosh, I don't 
on the daily. I don't view my life that way. And like I said, not in a, I'm going to beat myself up every day, but in a way of going, oh my gosh, Lord, I'm very minuscule compared to you, the Almighty. And having this right view of God and this sober view of myself, I'm a sinner, but you are God. We get to see another revelation and response from God. This time God reveals his grace. Look at this. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar, which he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So we see the grace of God revealed and displayed as he says, your sin is, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And look at the response. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. Now, that may not be the question. I'm not saying God's asking to send somebody, everybody somewhere. <laughs> Maybe there's another question for you. But I think in general, what we see here in this passage is as the grace of God is revealed, Isaiah says, well, what else would I do? You're asking who's going to go for us. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Reminds me of the disciples. When Jesus turns and says, are you too going to leave? And they say, Lord, where else would we go? Where else would we go, Jesus, but from walking with you? You know, Isaiah is giving everything his entire life. And once again, is this how we respond? Because of his grace, do we relinquish every area of our life to him? Do we give up control and say, God, you are God. I am not. I'm going to give every part of me to you. Everything. Not just some pieces, some parts. Not just when I'm here on Sunday mornings or when I'm with my home church or maybe when I'm out serving through a ministry. But, Lord, I'm going to give you everything about me. Here I am. Take me. You can have it all. However that looks when God is calling us, asking those questions, drawing us into worship. Because a real response to God's grace would be to lay everything at his feet. Everything we have. All of our talents, all the things that we think are make us important. We need to lay everything at his feet and say, Lord, you are worthy. Your glory, your grace, you are worthy to be worshipped. And I'm giving it all to you. And is that what we do? Or do we try to hang on to things for ourselves and not give those things up? One more example out of the New Testament. And it's a little different because there's not this personal encounter with God like Moses and like Isaiah. But it's in Romans, read with me in 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is the very end of chapter 11 of Romans. 
How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is setting this up for what he's about to tell us in Romans 12. But he's making a point here that everything is from him. It is through him, and it goes back to him. And here's what he says in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul's saying, Because of his mercy, remember what mercy is. Compassion toward an offender or a guilty party. It's God withholding what we do deserve. So Paul's saying, look back at everything I've just explained. In the first 11 chapters of Romans. Remember who you were as a sinner. Remember that you were dead in your transgressions. That you received death through one man, Adam, but now you have life through one man, Christ. And that you are unrighteous, but you've been given his righteousness. Chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of his righteousness. And Paul's looking back and he's saying, remember all of that. Remember his mercy. Remember what you should be receiving. But remember the grace of what he is offering you through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel. And he says this, offer, present yourself, your bodies as living sacrifices. God's not calling you to die physically, but he is calling you to die to yourself and to be A living sacrifice. To give of your life to him. To crawl back up on that altar over and over again and say, God, everything I got, it's yours. All my talents, they're yours, Lord. Everything you've you've allowed me to accumulate in this world, it's all yours, Lord. All my pain, all my suffering, Lord, it's yours. All my anxieties, it's yours. This is what he is calling us to do as living sacrifices. Because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of his great mercy, brothers and sisters, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. This is worship, to present ourselves each and every day onto his throne, onto his altar as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's a quote from Will Wyatt, an old friend that I learned under. He says, true worship is presenting ourselves to God in trust and obedience so that he can conform us to his likeness. True worship is presenting ourselves to God in trust and obedience so that he can conform us to his likeness. 
So it's about giving him everything. It's about obeying him with this simple obedience, about trusting him and doing that every single day. And through that, being brought in to these times of worship. Sometimes of a, a physical response where the only thing that we know to do is to bow down on our faces, on our knees and worship. With an, an emotional response of confession like Isaiah to where I am ruined, I am undone, Lord, I am unworthy. Here is everything about me. as a living sacrifice to continue to present ourselves to him and allow him to take everything about us. That is true worship. And it happens in lots of places, corporately, personally. It happens through song, through praise, through reading the word, through prayer, through service as God reveals to us and we are in this rhythm of responding back to him, he reveals who he is and he becomes the object of our worship as we respond back to him. You know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman, he said, my father is looking for true worshipers who will worship the father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This idea of spirit, this is, this is everything about us, our emotions, our whole beings, led by the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said earlier, it's not just an emotional frenzy that we're trying to whip everybody up. That's not worship. It's led by the Spirit. God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. But it's all of our being led by the Holy Spirit in spirit and in truth a correct view of God. Having the right view of who God is and who we are and being led by the Spirit. And I know it's hard because we think, well, gosh, Michael, if, if I was on Mount Sinai and the Lord stood beside me like Moses and described himself, of course I would fall on my face. I mean, Michael, come on. Uh, if I'm in the temple and the angels are in there and they're covering their faces and they're flying around and his robe is filling, of course, I would say, whoa, I'm ruined. But I love this, this verse. Because if we're led by the Holy Spirit and we worship in spirit and truth, we actually are filled with God. They were in God's presence. We have God's presence with in us. So we have everything within us through the power of the Holy Spirit of a person of the Trinity to worship by that power with the truth that we hang on to. So I don't know, maybe there are times where you have felt a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's times that you've pushed that off. But I encourage you, whether it's through worship here, worship tonight, time alone, 
with the Word of God, wherever that is, I encourage you, do not push off that nudge from the Spirit to be moved into worship physically and spiritually and emotionally to allow God's presence to change who you are and who you're becoming. True worship exalts God, humbles man, and radically transforms our hearts and minds. He is the object of our worship. And as long as he is on the throne, then our response will radically change us as we are brought into worship with him. Here's a few next steps. Respond to God by presenting yourself to him. Every day. Study Romans. Look at those verses. See what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice and present yourself every day, all day long. Join us tonight for a night of worship. We have a lot of talented folks who've worked really hard. They do it every week. And I'm so thankful. And they put together an incredible night for us tonight to create an environment where we can worship and praise God. And finally, keep a journal of how God leads you into worship this week. You know, there's moments, and we probably all have them, and a lot of it has to do with our attitude. You know, because I confess, sometimes I come in here on a Sunday morning, I don't have a good attitude. I'm not prepared to worship. This week, jot down little places where God leads you into times of worship with him. And let that bleed over into tonight and into next week when you're with people, when you're alone. So God will continue to change who we are as we give him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Let's pray. Father, you are holy you are good. You are mighty. And Lord, we get to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ through salvation. Lord, as you have offered us a gift of life, we get to respond to that as we sing, as we pray, as we lift our hands or as we bow our heads. Father, thank you for how you love us. Thank you that you're long-suffering. Thank you, Lord, that you do not give up on us. But you continue to reveal the truth of who you are and give us opportunities, Lord, to respond. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.